This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey guys, it's Mom Taraj, the podcast about being a mom that thinks that most mom stuff is super boring. So we created our own posse. I'm Ashley. And I'm Carrie. And we are ready to walk you down the red carpet of motherhood. Hey everybody. Hi friends. Oh my goodness, we have a really fun show for you guys today. I mean, it's a great show. My energy is going to be low, but it has nothing to do with the show. It has to do with the fact that I am on my deathbed. We are talking to Bess Wall, writer and director of the new critically acclaimed postpartum horror film, Baby Ruby. And then we're going to talk about gender in this day and age in schools. But as always, we have our hashtag swag bag. And up next, take it away, kiddo. The tits and the shits. I'll go with my shits, which is I have been sick for far too long. And I'm finally on antibiotic. I don't really want to talk about it anymore, but I'm really struggling. So I apologize that you guys have had to listen to this voice. I think you should tell people what you have because I think they might be worried at this point. I have bronchitis, acute sinusitis, and acute asthma. Basically, I guess I'm just cute because that's what they're telling me. (laughs) I had COVID over the summer and my breathing has never been the same. And my asthma was not a big deal my whole life, except after COVID, it got really bad. That's kind of what's going on. And I didn't want to run to the doctor right away because I'm like, "Eh, viral, you know, like whatever. But now it's gone on too long. Because you're a mom and because there's a zillion other things that need to happen. Right. So don't worry. I don't need to go fund me. I just need a nap. (laughs) That should be a shirt. I don't need to go fund me. I need a nap. I'm going to write that down. You should. Although I could just think that's brilliant because I'm on so many medications. My other shits are that I thought it was a good idea when both me and my daughter are sick to cut her hair yesterday. It didn't go great. So we're going to have to go to pigtails and crew cuts and get a little uh, evened off. Is that what the place is called? Yeah, it's called pigtails and crew cuts. What a strange name. It's the kids one where they have like rocket ships and airplanes yeah, and yeah, shit yeah. like that. She was like crying and moving around. She had so many rat's ends in the bottom of her long hair. I was just hacking it off. It was a shit show. My tits are this mascara gate with Michaela. Those are your tits? I mean, listen, I don't have many tits right now. I'm feeling so ill, but I love when there's drama that's not my drama. Oh yeah, that's why I love reality TV. It's so nice when it's not involving you, but you feel like you're in on it. Michaela is that Boston influencer that is talks real like low class or whatever. Now we're gonna try house labs. It's like she's a subway trucker. I'm convinced every man hates the sound of her voice. I mean, I don't love it either. Matt hates it. My dad hates it. I like Boston accents. I think they're fun. Anyway, she should also be the face of Dunkin' Donuts. She was using the telescope mascara and she said it before and then she did an after. They say that she was wearing lashes with it. They've done some zoom ins and such and it does look like she's wearing some lashes. Maybe like one piece but it's there. And then the ghost of Jeffree Star who's been in hiding who looks like he is Voldemort at this point. He is, no, he, I, you, people, okay, that was such a stutter. Feel free to leave that in because that was just so weird. It's not even Voldemort to me. It's Nosferatu. Nosferatu. Nosferatu is what Jeffree Star looks like to me. He is the most horrifying person. (laughs) 
I've ever seen. He basically woke up from his social media grave and was like, girl, you're wearing lashes. And then it came out that he's dating someone in the NFL and it's NFL gate. I know. I love that. I think that there's lots of things at play here. She probably has lashes glued on her eyes. So how can she do a mascara review anyway? Yeah, she probably has a lash extension for the most part. Right. And then other people have done the side-by-side who don't have it. And they say it is a good mascara and it does work. So the shame of it is that it was actually a pro sell, but she made it look bad by having lashes. But also she's a person who likes to have stuff done to her. She's out about having her lips done. She probably has extensions on. So that does make it a little bit trickier, but she should have probably said it on the video. I kind of like her as an influencer. Me too. She's been coming under fire a lot these days. I hope she's saving her money because I think her time might be coming to an end. I have one more thing on that front that is driving me crazy. My former queen, Bethany Frankel, she just is constantly on the wrong side of things. And you know, there really isn't a right side and a wrong side, but her whole take with Meghan Markle, whether you agree with her or not, She's a public figure. And at this point, just shut your mouth. People are calling you racist. Shut your mouth. And now with this Michaela thing, she's kind of on Michaela's team. She's just constantly on the wrong side. It drives me crazy. And then you sent me a thing about this TikToker who posted something that she got together with this dude whose wife died in childbirth and she started dating him like months. They say like that's their child. And all these people are like, what's going on? Listen, you know, I love drama, but this is what I have to say. I know a lot of people that after their spouse died, got together with someone pretty quickly. And I know a lot of them, it was like a best friend or a close relation. Grieving is hard and it must be hard to have your wife die right after she has a baby and not know what to do with the baby. I wouldn't call it our baby. I would say that's my stepdaughter, but great that they found love. They're having a baby together too. The way that they're saying it's her baby is sort of erasing the mother out of it, which is weird. But the fact that they got together so quickly, that does happen a lot. And if that kid's going to have a good life, just let that kid have a good life. I get what you're saying, but I would come back and haunt the shit out of those two. I was just going to say that mom is going to haunt the fuck out of her. If that was Matt and some other bitty, I would take care of that baby, but I would haunt the shit out of him. Would you like to go, Ashley? Yes. My shits are, let me ask you a question. Of all the domestic chores, what is your number one least favorite? Washing the bathroom. Mine is cleaning the dishwasher, which I bet... If I did it more than once every year and a half, it would not be as awful. I've never done it. It is the most revolting job. You got to disassemble things and there's all kinds of weird crud. And I found a sprout growing out of some food particle. And then you have to take out the filter and the filter is covered in white, like yeast infection look. I hate it so much. And I just did it before we recorded. And I needed to say how much I absolutely hate cleaning the dishwasher, but it's off my to-do list, my January long-term things that needed to be taken care of, because today's the last day of January that we're recording this. Anyway, my tits are, I hope you don't think that I'm making a dig at you. This has nothing to do with you, and I feel terrible that you're feeling so sick, but I have been feeling pretty decent lately. I was feeling so sick for so long, and I am just relieved to not feel so fucking terrible, and it's really nice. I finished that Athletic Greens subscription. I tried another green powder we had in the basement that we were buying for smoothies. Didn't do the same thing. Didn't give me energy the way the Athletic Greens did. Reordered it. Paying. I don't care. I don't care how much this Athletic Greens shit or anything else costs me. I just want to feel good. Yay, Athletic Greens. Let's go on to Best Wall. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's guest is a writer, director, and acclaimed playwright who's been nominated for both a Tony Award and a Drama Desk Award. But it's her newest project, Baby Ruby, in theaters now, which she both wrote and directed that tells the story of Joe, a successful lifestyle entrepreneur who is awaiting the arrival of her first child. But soon after Joe welcomes Baby Ruby home, something starts to feel off. Even though she's assured it's all perfectly normal. At last, she must confront the truth of her own darkness and contend with the ultimate human sacrifice, the one mothers make for their children. Welcome, Bess Wool. I am just going to jump in. I thought Baby Ruby was incredible. I have been calling it, when I was trying to summarize it to my husband, a postpartum horror film, if you will. It tells the story of a woman who was absolutely rocked emotionally by having a baby, and she's a seemingly perfect and domesticated woman. Is this a story of general postpartum fourth trimester feelings? Or did you aim to write a story about postpartum depression specifically? I think the answer is kind of yes, both. You don't have to have had postpartum depression to relate to some of the feelings that this character goes through. And in fact, a lot of moms who outwardly seemed quote unquote fine as they went through the experience have come up to me since seeing this film and said like, did you read my diary? How did you get inside my head? So I think it's not exclusively about postpartum depression, but I think that that's also a very serious and important piece of the conversation when we're talking about the experience of becoming a new mother. So I think the movie has room for people who had what they call the baby blues or a sense of dislocation or the sort of natural identity destabilization that happens when you become a parent and people who have unfortunately experienced the full range. Harry and I talk about this extensively. She had postpartum depression and I just had the baby blues and I relate to so many parts of this film where it was just constantly feeling like myself and my child were in danger, even though it wasn't to that fullest extent. I've talked about with my sister for years how the whole process of trying to get pregnant being pregnant, carrying the baby inside your body, all of it is kind of like a weird, creepy sci-fi horror movie because it's so bizarre. It's supposed to be, quote unquote, the most natural thing, and yet it feels so foreign and bizarre. What inspired you to write a film like this? I have three children, and while nothing, thankfully, as extreme as what happens in this movie happened to me, I did sort of experience the germs of all of these feelings and the exact things that you're both talking about, the anxiety, the feeling of, am I losing my mind? You go back to an animal state or something. Yeah, absolutely do. And a lot of the tropes of horror are also present in the experience of 
new motherhood. And I think that was something that really struck me. A woman alone in a house, the feeling of isolation. And yet that's also something that is so common to new mothers, right? This feeling of I'm all alone. There's a creature with me. These things started emerging in the experience that felt familiar to me, not from anything anyone had warned me about or anything that I knew before in my life, but from horror films that I had seen. And I thought this experience needs to be looked at through that lens. Noemi Merlant is the star of this film. But what I found really fascinating is she is not a mother in real life. And yet you would never, ever know that. Called acting, baby. I know, but there is no way to know what that feels like without having been through it, in my opinion. And although she is truly incredible, how was this performance possible? And how did you, as a director, a mother of three kids, pull this performance from her? And I don't mean to underestimate her because she's incredible, but can you speak to what you may have done? First of all, as you said, she's an incredible actress. She's just absolutely magnificent and so deeply committed to anything that she does. I thought that her not having been a mother would have been an impediment, but in a way it was perfect because Joe has also never been a mother when the experience hits her. She has no idea what she's doing either. So the fact that Noemi felt like she couldn't really relate to the babies or she didn't know how to hold a baby or she didn't know how to stop a baby from crying. In a way, those are the exact things that the character is going through. So I spent like 30 seconds thinking, oh God, I'm going to have to teach her all this stuff about being a mother. And then I sort of stopped myself and thought, wait a minute, I'm not going to teach her anything because Joe doesn't know anything. And it's this beautiful moment where the actor and the character are in the exact same circumstance, which is what do I do with this baby? I remember that feeling so strongly, just looking into my baby's face and being like, hey, you came out of me, but I don't know how to hold you. Everyone around you saying like, this is going to be the most natural thing ever. (laughs) Yeah. The second you look into your baby's eyes, everything will be revealed. We had Amy Hobelman on the show last year for the film A Mouthful of Air which she wrote and directed and also deals with in that case it was very severe depression and the journey into motherhood it's really incredible that these stories are being told because just five years ago when we started this whole venture it was not being told and it's so needed and to be destigmatized and just brought out into the open the conversation is really possible now in a way that it wasn't even a couple of years ago and I'm so excited by that fact. And there's so many, especially women filmmakers coming to the forefront. And the more women filmmakers you have, the more stories about women that feel authentic and truthful are going to be told. I think there's really a sea change. I think the world is waking up to the fact that women are half of the population and deserve to have our stories told. When I was first starting out writing screenplays, I remember vividly an agent saying to me, because I said like, oh, I think I'm interested in stories about women. And one of my first agents, this was when I was just writing, not making films, he said, well, don't tell anyone that you write stories about women. And I said, why? And he's like, you don't want to get pigeonholed into women. No one would say that anymore. That was maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Now it's like, there's a sense that these stories are valid and they need to be told. And so thankfully, I think I was able to profit from a lot of women who came before me who banged those doors open and made it just that little bit easier for me to push it open and get this story told and get it told with so many amazing collaborators. We ask all of our guests this, what is the number one thing you think every parent should outsource if they have the means to do so? This is a judgment-free zone. The cooking and feeding of the children, even if it's like opening a can of soup is your outsourcing. I just find 
find it almost impossible. Whether you're at home with your kids or whether you're going off to a job, whatever your life is, the last thing I want to do at five o'clock is cook a gourmet meal for my children. When I discovered you could open a box of frozen chicken nuggets and pour it onto a baking sheet and shove it in the oven, that was a life-changing moment for me. I want to outsource the anxiety. That's what I want to outsource. <laughs> I don't even think that's possible. The guilt would be a great thing to outsource if you could. As you both know, there's so much joy to it. I think the hardest experiences in life are the best experiences. Yep. For me, motherhood is all of it. And the point of this movie is how do we make space for all of it and not judge? So I love that you said judgment-free zone because that's part of what I'm trying to foster with this film. Please plug yourself, plug the film, tell us where to find it, do all the stuff. Best wall, first time filmmaker. And it is Baby Ruby is in theaters and everywhere digitally on February 3rd. Thank you so, so much for everything. Can't wait to see how people receive this film because I think it's going to be so awesome for so many women. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to talk. As you guys know, I've been teaching a lot with kids of various ages over the summer, in schools here throughout the year, and all throughout every place that I've been teaching, this idea of gender is really, really a hot button item. And navigating it myself as an educator has been tricky, trying to give respect to the children, make sense of it myself, because I'm still trying to figure out all the pronouns and the etiquette because it didn't used to be as big of a thing. And also probably considering parents too, because as a parent, I get it, but I feel weird about the fact that teachers don't have to tell us those things. Well, that's what I was getting to. So this article just came out about gender identity students and parents in schools. So basically, right now, the protocol says it's sort of like if you take your kid to a child psychologist, it's the doctor-patient confidentiality contract. So schools and teachers are not necessarily required to tell parents about gender changes if the kid asks them not to tell. I'm jumping around a little bit, but it really varies from state to state about what the rules are. Schools are doing their best to try to keep students safe and comfortable. One of the quotes said, when you're trans, you feel like you're in danger all the time. This person who was saying, even though my parents were accepting, I was still scared and that's why school didn't tell them. Although the number of young people who identify as transgender in the U.S. still remains kind of small, it has nearly doubled in recent years. And schools have come under pressure to address the needs of these young people amid this very polarized political environment where both sides warn that one misstep could really result in irreparable harm, which is frightening when we talk about children. I'm sure as a school, it's scary because it's not only irreparable damage that can happen to the children, it's also one misstep on behalf of the school. And the teacher. And the teacher could be absolutely detrimental. What a hard situation to be in. And amongst already a situation with COVID where teachers are also overtaxed. I'm not siding with the teachers. I'm just saying this is a tricky situation. I think it's incredibly tricky. Both sides have valid points. I would get why you would side with the teacher in all honesty. So different schools have different protocols on what to tell parents and what not to tell parents. Districts have said that they want parents to be involved, but must follow federal and in some cases state guidance that is meant to protect students from discrimination and violations of their privacy. So in a state like Florida with their don't say gay bill, does it address how that is handled? In this specific article, it does go through the states. We'll link the article. I didn't want to tedious 
obviously go through each state's policies. Here's the thing. Research has pointed that inclusive policies benefit students, advising us to use the student's preferred pronouns and names. Some parents, however, feel that the school maybe has forced the process to move too quickly and parents know best. So for that, I just want to say schools are doing in-services where a speaker comes and explains to the kids all these things. And so I think the argument here is that maybe a kid that wouldn't have normally thought about this at this time has this open discussion and starts to think about it. This is where the Fox News crowd starts to say that kids are being indoctrinated. And although I don't agree, I understand why they say that. There are some kids that at a young age are starting to think about it. And that's why the school is having these in-services or in-service, I don't know if it's the right word. You mean like somebody comes and speaks to them? Correct. Talks to the whole school saying this is a thing. We want to respect everybody. But the kids that maybe weren't thinking about it, it starts to percolate in their mind. And so parents are like, I think maybe some schools are pushing it or because they have to address it, it's maybe for some kids pushing it a little earlier than they would have. So here's the interesting thing. LGBTQ advocates and youth counselors say that parents really need to stop scapegoating schools and instead ask themselves why they don't believe their children when they say something. This is all unfolding as the Republicans are really rallying around this parental rights thing about education and mental health care for kids. So it's very partisan conversation, even though it shouldn't be. Erica Anderson is a well-known clinical psychologist, has worked with children a ton, and herself is trans. And interestingly, she said, transitioning socially is a major and potentially life-altering decision that requires parental involvement for many reasons. She doesn't want to take anyone's identity or prerogatives away, but she does kind of side with the parents in this argument, which is interesting. It is interesting. That was a surprise to me. She's like, yes, you have to listen to the children and respect the pronouns, but I think that the parents are right in that they need to be a greater part of the conversation and need to be let in. So once again, I just want to say that each state has school guidelines that are very different. And also, this is an extremely hard thing to navigate on both sides. It's hard to navigate even if you have extreme liberal values on individuality, freedom, and expression of sexuality. It often comes down to the medicalization of the process. They're afraid of that part. And so this isn't really completely a two-party fight. No. The conversation is tricky for everyone involved. Really, the takeaway for me before we start to talk was we have to listen to what the kids are saying and try to, as best we can, use the names and the pronouns that they want. And that includes parents. Whether they like it or not, if you want to be in on what your children are doing and not feel like things are being kept from you, then you have to be open to certain things. And the schools towing the line, I mean, I think it's tricky. I think that something needs to be not state by state. I think there needs to be a general, ideally, a mandate that gets the parents involved, respects the kids, doesn't put the onus completely on the school. So how are your feelings about this? My feelings are really mixed because let's say Sebastian is older and Sebastian discovers that he's trans or maybe that he's not trans, that he's just experimenting with the possibility of being trans and wants to go by a different name. I hope that I have done all the right things and created a home environment for him where he feels safe to come and talk to me about these things. I do think that I am a parent that is very open and very accepting. I would want to know that this is what my kid is doing at school, just like anything else. I do think, and I don't think this of every child, and I'm trying to pick my words very wisely here. I think there are going to be kids that are crying out being trans because their friends are trans. Yeah. I don't think it's every kid. I don't even think it's a majority of kids. I do think that for certain children, it will be 
something they try on just because it's cool. Just like I tried on all kinds of things because my friends were doing it. They should still be allowed to try that on. That's what experimenting and figuring out who you are is. So something that I've encountered now working with children of all different kinds of ages is that one, there's been a few kids that I have seen that in my opinion, and again, my opinion is nothing. Right. Like what do you actually know about their home life? Start the process of gender transitioning, whether that's medical or pronoun or all the different phases. And then when they are feeling fully themselves, everything goes into place. The academic stuff goes back into place. The behavioral stuff goes back into place. And they are truly living a really full, happy child life. I see that more rarely. I do see that in some kids that I've worked with, and it's definite. But what I also see is that some of these delicate ages, the herd mentality is real. Yeah. And so it's almost as if some outcast kids, I'm calling them outcasts, they aren't, but I'm just saying that idea of like us against the world, kids will band together and a lot of those kids are going through something, whether it's anxiety. Just figuring out who the hell they are. Yeah, but I'm saying a bunch of people that are considered outcasts or marginalized are coming together to be like us against them. We're going to protect and come in. And when you say outcast, you're not talking about race. You're not talking about gender. You're talking about like an 80s movie outcast type concept. Kids that feel like men. Misfits yes. come together and band us against them. And in some cases, they marginalize in the opposite direction to overcompensate sometimes. But it's a herd mentality thinking. So they want to protect and be insular. And so oftentimes they're like an amoeba. The whole thing thinks together instead of individually. And that's where the danger comes in. And that's a danger for any parent, regardless of whether it's about gender or whatever. You never want your kid to not be in an individualized thinker. I'm not in the situation, so I can't say what I would do. But I definitely feel like personally, I would have no problem respecting them trying on different genders and names. If it came down to an irreversible medical situation, that would be a very hard decision. I've tried to put myself in that situation a number of times and I can't. In my mind, I'm like, all right, when a child is 18, then that's something they can do medically. But you know what? I'm not in that situation. I don't know what it feels like. Yeah, if you had a suicidal child that was really struggling, you might feel differently. Right. This is not my place to say how that should be handled. I'm not a professional in any way, and I do realize how damaging feeling like that can truly be for somebody. I agree with you. I also would be fine honoring Sebastian if he wanted to try on different pronouns and different names and give this thing a go. That being said, I would also have a lot of conversations with him, open conversations, not threatening, not pointed, just really asking him to explore, is this herd mentality or is this something that you are really truly feeling. And on top of that, despite how you and I would handle it, there are fathers. And I think Matt would be pretty open. I can't speak to Lee. I don't know. I can tell you both sets of grandparents. I think if he came out and was totally like, listen, I am trans. I know at the very least my parents would accept it. But I think if he's seven years old and starts saying he's trans, I don't think that would be accepted necessarily. I think my parents would be like, he's going through a phase and it would take accepting his decision making and his own knowledge of himself for them to accept that. So he would deal with hardship in his own family. I don't think people 
call him the F-bomb and stuff like that. But I don't think people would be like, oh, come on over here, Sebastiana. That's obviously not the female version of it. I think something that's tricky for me as an educator and a parent is that, you know, in olden times, your gender and your sexuality used to be so entangled. Going into school, it was even like if you were a girl, you took home ec. If you were a boy, you took wood shop. And so for me to try to broach some of these conversations with the students, I'm always like, I don't need to know about your sexuality. That is no one's business. That's definitely not a teacher's business. Just like you don't know mine. I don't really need to know that. Right. Your gender is a different thing because I want to respect that. But it is a hard thing for me to wrap my brain around all of these different nomenclatures and differences because in my mind, just from so many years of, I guess, the way we've always thought, having sexuality and gender be kind of intertwined and they're not. Yeah. One final word. This is a difficult conversation on both ends of the coin or all three sides of the coin, I guess. I feel for the teachers. I feel for the parents. I feel for the students. This is a new thing that we are really going to have to get on board with and navigate. We need to figure out how to serve our children and the education system and the parents as best we can. And for a long time, we've been failing in a lot of those different places. I don't know what the answers are, but this needs to be a full-time commitment to figuring this out because it's a really big part of my life now that I'm in education. We are the superpower of the world in terms of military and GDP and all of that other stuff. However, our schools, I don't even think they're in the top 30 of the whole world. There's a lot of work to be done in so many different ways. I would love to hear from you guys if you feel comfortable. We've had a mother dealing with this on. Yes, from Ides of Gender that Ashley's friend Zach is helping to raise awareness on his project. But I'd love to hear from you guys on the educator standpoint, on the parent standpoint. Kids, if you're listening, tell us what's going on. How are you guys dealing with this and be kind. Don't send us hate mail. I mean, send it if you want. It doesn't mean we'll address it. Right. Do what you need to do. But this is an interesting and important conversation to have and I want to keep having it. So please tell us where you're at and what your schools are doing across the country and how they're handling it. What are the wins and what are the misses? At hello at momtragepodcast.com or hit us up in our DMs. Hashtag swag bag. I've been going through this whole thing, cleaning out my closet, buying things with lots of intention, not just buying a bunch of shit for no reason. Part of that is taking care of what I already have. And I often have sweaters that pill because that's just what sweaters do. I have been through so many sweater depillers, shavers, whatever you want to call them, that have been highly rated on Amazon and work like absolute crap. But I have finally found the one. The one that works and is fully worth its $18. It is the Magic Tech Rechargeable Fabric Shaver. So firstly, it's rechargeable. So you're not going through a shit ton of batteries, which I love. Everything about it is so easy. I used to have that blue Conair one. I have that one. That one sucks compared to this. I've only used it on one sweater and it's Matt's Pendleton type sweater. What's the movie about the dude? Big Lebowski sweater. Exactly. I haven't used it on a more delicate, like a cashmere or anything. So I can't speak to how it performs on a more delicate fabric. But it completely brought this thing back to life. And then on the back, it has, you know, the fabric lint things that I always think are shit. Oh, yeah, yeah. When I have real lint, this is not the thing that's going to work, but it works with the depilling when you have fabrics that are loose to grab them together and then pill it. This thing is in our Amazon storefront and it is incredible. Throw away your Conair one because it is a piece of shit. I have been on a Trader Joe's kick lately. Oh, the best. And so I'm going to recommend the Vitamin C Firming Body 
honey butter from Trader Joe's. It's got some glycolic business in it because my skin has been scaly and weird and I get those little dots, the chicken skin dots. It has a light citrus odor. I just needed to thicken up my routine. I was doubling up lotion. And so this is thicker. It's a body butter and it's cheap. Before you buy too much Trader Joe's bath type stuff, I have been through so much. Text me before you make purchases because a lot of it isn't good. I have not tried the one you got. I have tried their other body butters, but this one I like. Their shampoos and conditioners are awful. Yeah. So much of their body stuff is not good. So before you buy it, let me know. And if I've used it, I will tell you. Let the mom taraj tell you. Yes, because even at $4.99, sometimes this shit's just not worth it. Well, thanks, guys. It's been real. Bye, guys. Bye. Okay, that's our show today, folks. Thank you so much for giving us a listen. Please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe or follow. We are out here on our own and these things really, really matter. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you want to hear. Email us at hello at momtouragepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, all at Momtourage Podcast to hang out with us all week long. We are here for you. You are not alone. We got you. So go ahead, girl. Know this posse is behind you and go slay. Momtourage is a Cafe Mom podcast written and produced by Ashley Heron-Smith and Carrie Sotero. Recorded and mixed by Lee Mars. Our theme song, MILF, is by the band Mama Drama. You can find them on Instagram at mamadramaband or mamadramaband.com. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.